before we get into the show, I'd like to request a couple of things from you, if you wouldn't mind. When you've got the time, I'd love you to head over to bjjstrength.com forward slash gymballfree, J-Y-M-B-A-L-L free. I'll put the link below, and that's for you to get access to some free content from the incredibly well-received and my latest program, the Gym Ball for BJJ course, which is using a gym ball or a stability ball, depending on what terms you use, to dramatically improve um, your movement for jiu-jitsu. I'll put the link below, but head head over to that page and you can get access to some free content from it or you could even head to bjjstrength.com forward slash gym ball if you want to take a look at the full program and take a look at all the testimonials you know whatever is best for you um but if you're interested in strength and conditioning um you know one-on-one coaching some of the other free material that i have like the breathing for bjj course you can also head to bjjstrength.com forward slash programs Unfortunately, even though I'm British, I've used the um, American spelling because I think it's easier and quicker. So a program spelled P-R-O-G-R-A-M-S. Again, I'll I'll put the link below. Um, But more than anything, guys, if you do enjoy the content that I put out on the podcast or any other channel, really, one of the biggest ways that you can support me and support the podcast is by spreading the word um, about the show whether it's via social media, put, put in a link of one of your favorite shows and sharing it to people uh, on your Facebook page, on your Instagram, me- sending it to people, or just when you're talking to people at the gym and you know, you're know you sharing some of maybe some of the knowledge that you've picked up, let people know where they can find the show. And what really, really helps more than anything to help grow the audience and grow the podcast is go on to whatever platform you use, whether it's iTunes or another platform, if you could leave a rating and a review um, I'll be sure to you know give give as many people as I can a shout out when they do that. But these things are an incredible help for the podcast and inc- an incredible way to support the show. But with that, guys, you know check out the links in the show notes if you've got the time. Otherwise, let's get on with the show. Hello, you lovely, lovely people, and welcome to the latest episode of the BJJ Strength Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring to you an interview with DNS chiropractic practitioner Bob Newhaven. Um, Bob and I connected a couple of months ago and it was originally uh, a brief discussion around a DNS approach and DNS stands for Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization and he'll explain a bit more in the interview what exactly what that means but a DNS approach towards yoga which we you know we talk about how you've got to be aware of certain positions in yoga from a DNS perspective um, the you know how d- dynamic neuromuscular stabilization is so critically important as a foundation to so much stuff that we do uh, particularly in jiu-jitsu and all of the strength and conditioning we do for jujitsu we talk about why having an eight pack is maybe you know might look good in photos but actually is could be you know detrimental um to your overall health and bob shares his story about how he got a herniated disc and got into the whole dns thing we talk about if i look over my notes uh you know neck strength and neck position and head position how that's critically important um recommendations for how you can apply dns you know work into your own day-to-day routines a whole bunch of stuff i've talked about you know dns quite a bit over the last couple of months so i was excited to have bob on i think you're going to learn a lot guys so with that let's get on with the show you're listening to the bjj strength podcast 
helping you be your best physically, on the mats and off the mats. With your host, BJJ Black Belt and physical optimization specialist, Lawrence Griffiths. Okay, guys, uh, welcome to the latest BJJ Strength Podcast. I'm very lucky to have with me Bob uh, Newhafen. Is that how you pronounce your surname? Sounds good. Yes, yeah. sir. I should have checked beforehand. Um, Bob is kindly joining us um, from vacation, right? So I'm very grateful for you take, take, taking the time out. We both got young, young kids about the same age, so I know what it's like. I know how hard it is to get the time away. Um, the my my internet connection is a little bit patchy today so if you're a slight delay guys when you're listening bear with us but i think i think we're gonna be okay um but you know bob with that why don't you say hello and quickly introduce yourself hello everybody my name is Bob Newhaven. i'm a dns-based chiropractic physician that practices out of northwest indiana which is uh, and so uh, i'm a movement-based guy uh, I run an m- integrative practice there with medical, chiropractic, and physical therapy. And then I also run Modus Education, which is a company where we host different seminars and CEUs across the country. We host a lot of DNS stuff, which we're going to talk about here, some grip approach. Uh, I hosted MoveNet earlier this year. We're hosting Andy Galpin later. So, you know, just trying to get some content out there from some of these great minds to, um, you know, help all of us out. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, what would be the difference between someone who's a chiropractor and someone who's taking um, a DNS approach to chiropractice, if, that, if that's the correct term? What would be the difference for someone taking a DNS approach, maybe what someone traditionally thinks about as a chiropractor? Yeah, so for me, my entire approach is movement-based. So from the second somebody starts walking into my office, I'm evaluating their gait and I'm looking at you know, their posture, I'm looking at their pelvic position, I'm looking at their head position. And so I'm, you know, when they walk into my office, I'm doing all kinds of different functional tests. I'm um, doing a three month supine test, which is similar to guard position for you BJJ guys out there. And I'm looking at the quality of their movement. So before I really even lay a hand on them, um, I'm, I'm checking out their movement and seeing what's going on. And I think that that right away is a, is a pretty typical difference. I don't x-ray a lot of people unless I, you know, I see some red flags. Uh, I don't do a lot of imaging in general, right, really, because the research really only supports it in certain times and certain conditions. So a lot of us are young, healthy individuals and, you know, need an x-rays and MRIs just aren't always really necessary. My approach is definitely movement-based. And I think you're, you're seeing more and more chiropractors and physical therapists out there who are also assessing and treating this way. Yeah. So typically, I've never been to a chiropractor, but I think the preconception of a chiropractor would be it's more to do with adjusting the back, if, if, that, if that's correct. Would that be a correct assumption a lot of people would have or preconception? Yeah. So, you know, the, a lot of people have this idea that you walk into a chiropractor's office, they're going to take x-rays and they're going to say, oh, we need to adjust your, your neck or crack your bones and, and that's it. And, you know, nowadays, um, people like me, you're going to walk in, I'm going to evaluate you, we're going to take a look at your movements, and we're going to see what's wrong there. And it's just a, a very different approach than what 
most people think it might be. Yeah. So old school versus new school, if you will. Okay. So I suppose if you, if you adjust the back, you're treating the symptoms, but what you're trying to do is treat the causes by looking at the movements. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, adjustments are a tool, right? So it's just motion. It's kind of similar to a stretch for your muscle. It's just adding motion to an area of the spine or a joint that doesn't move real well. So, you know, if somebody's got a really big punch in their mid back and they're really stiff, I might adjust them there, but adjusting is just that it's a tool for me and, you know, different tools for different jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm busy. I'm busy making notes. If you see me looking away for the camera, just, just to let you know. So I want to take a step back a little bit. So I've talked about DNS or dynamic neuromuscular stabilization in the past, but I'd love to hear you explain to it, to, to, to the audience, what DNS is and what it can, what it means to you and maybe what it should mean to them as well. Sure. So DNS or dynamic neuromuscular stabilization is a technique that's primarily founded out of Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, a guy named Pavel Kolaj, um, you know, came up with it as the founder of it. And it's based on some pretty awesome work that's kind of added up over the last few years. And for me, it's primarily based <clears throat> on developmental kinesiology or how we developed from being a kid. So you were talking, you and I were talking before the podcast that we both have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And so neither of us taught our kids how to lift their legs up. Neither of us taught our kids uh, how to crawl, how to squat, how to walk. Those patterns were already in their heads, in their brains when they were born. And so DNS just recognizes that. And it takes those patterns that all of us human beings have and it starts to categorize them and puts them into different positions and, and classifications and then helps us learn how to utilize them, not just for kids, but for adults to uh, make us more efficient in the way that we move and create less injuries, fix problems, and also to enhance our performance, which is what gets me really excited about DNS. Yeah. What, what brought you into it? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, sure. Um, what got you into DNS in the first place? What kind of, you know, what was your history getting into getting into that, that field? Yeah, so my story, uh, I was a chiropractor fresh out of school and I developed a sports hernia. And, you know, I started looking over the research and there was just nothing on how to treat it except surgery or nothing. And I just couldn't accept that answer. And I started asking some questions and digging around and, and finally came across a guy who introduced me to DNS. And, you know, at the time I had a whole bunch of techniques and I didn't really have, like, I was missing something, you know, and for me, DNS started, uh, it, it put that piece together for me. And, you know, within a month of, of getting DNS based treatment, I was pain free and I've never had surgery. And I haven't had my hernia checked from an imaging, but I'm pretty sure it's gone because it doesn't hurt at all ever anymore. And it's been years. And, uh, yeah, I was just, I was missing something and this seems to be it for me. It's a pretty powerful story that you've gone from a place of either having a permanent hernia, having surgery to then taking a completely different approach and within a month. And it sounds like still to this day have had, you know, no problems with it. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, that's the power of what DNS can do for some people. Um, is for me, it's, it's a guiding philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it, 
it puts together the, you know, not just what happened, but why it happened in the first place for me and what I can do about it and how I can prevent it from coming back. And that's all work for me that I needed to do on my diaphragm and my pelvic floor and my intra-abdominal canister, as GNS would call it. And uh, I wasn't doing a very good job there, which is why I got a hernia in the first place. So what what were the things that you were doing beforehand? Because you you look you're you're a guy that's obviously in shape, and it's, you said it was a sports related hernia. So it sounds like you were staying in shape. But what are the things that you were doing um, and maybe not doing that drove you towards having that problem with your back? Yeah, it's a great question and one that, you know, I've seen a lot of my athletes. So I was a basketball player and a runner and uh, I was still actively running and training. And, you know, I at one point had an eight pack. So my rectus abdominis muscle was very overdeveloped and my obliques were very underdeveloped. I basically had holes on the sides where my obliques were mm-hmm. and my, my eight pack was my train tracks. And DNS would say, or at least in my opinion, that that was not a very balanced approach to my abdominal musculature. And I was a chest breather. I wasn't, I wasn't using my diaphragm well. And because of that, I had a really weak transverse abdominis because I wasn't using it correctly and it ended up developing a tear. And you see that a lot. So for you, for those of you out here who you look at your six pack and you think, yeah, man, this is awesome. And you see little to no muscle tone next to that. You may want to consider seeing a DNS practitioner because that's a problem waiting to happen very often. It was for me. So does that, does that get into the area then of the prime movers versus the stabilizing muscles and then how that can lead? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you out there, the prime movers uh, and the stabilizing muscles are different groups of muscles. So your stabilizers are say your transverse and your oblique, the muscles that, like keep your like your joints in a stable position while the prime movers are the bigger muscles that actually help your body move. So like your, your pecs and your uh, traps are examples of those. And then does the, pro- do, do the problems occur when you're like a hernia, for example, right? I'm, I'm guessing you, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. So if you've got, if the outer abdominal muscles are really strong and you've got an eight pack, which you know, like many people might think, great, I'd love to have an eight pack. But if the deeper muscles that are supporting the spine on a day-to-day basis are not stabilizing the spine, and then you're then applying all this force on the outer part of the body, the spine is not being held together in the way it should. And that's when stuff starts to shift and stuff starts to move and the pressure goes onto the spine in, in a way that it shouldn't. Yeah. And that's pretty true in my opinion for most joints. So when the muscles that are supposed to keep your joints in a, in a centrated position as we use in TNS, which mm-hmm. is another name for that would be a neutral position. And so the hip is a great example for, for, for the jiu-jitsu guys out there. So the hip is a ball and socket joint and that ball should ideally stay in the center of the socket. And if some of your stabilizing muscles aren't helping to do that in any position, it starts to create compression and then different forces on that joint. Like in the spine, it would be shearing uh, and that can happen in the, in the hip as well. But when you start to compress and shear a portion of a joint, it can start to pinch which is like a hip impingement. It can start to wear down, 
which is where people end up getting, you know, osteoarthritis. So a mm -hmm. really great example is, you know, the anterior superior portion of the hip is where most people grind down their hip and end up having uh, hip, why they end up having arthritis and hip replacements there. And if usually for me, that's a problem that started a long time ago that people just let slide and then it started to grind down. And next thing you know, it's not there anymore. There's, I think it's Lucas Leach. Um, I forget, right? But one of the, it's quite quite a well-known world champion jujitsu black belt, and I think he was in his early 30s and had to have hip surgery. Maybe not even in his 30s, right? And you've got you've got to think that maybe there are specific circumstances for him, you know, other than jujitsu. But you shouldn't be having a jujitsu. You shouldn't be having a hip surgery or hip replacement at that age. Right. If, if you're looking after your body. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the earliest I saw was a competitive CrossFit guy who ended up having hip replacement on one hip at 37. And it basically, we found out, you know, cause I basically right before surgery is he had a developmental condition called femoral retroversion, which is when the femurs are too externally rotated in the socket, mm -hmm. which is one thing that made him so powerful and it's I think very prevalent in jujitsu as well because it gives you lots of external rotation. Yeah. But one of the limiting factors in him was he didn't have much internal rotation. And so when he did try and internally rotate, he didn't do it well and he started to grind through that joint at a very early age, which what would, led to early hip replacement for him. What would be a, a movement where you would look where the hip would normally internally rotate? Uh so hip extension and internal rotation are coupled motions. So if okay. you're seeing somebody like running, for instance, and they have a little limited hip extension, they might be limited there. But one of the big things I look for are the guys who stand with their feet pointed out. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, we've all seen them, right? And especially some people are really far out. Yeah. Um, now, some people just, that's the way they trend. But there's, you know, we've all seen the people who turn pretty far out and they don't know why those are the people that I would take a look at for femoral retroversion, just kind of off the bat. Um, but sorry, back to your question. Um, um, another motion might be a 90, 90 sit where one leg is externally rotated and the other legs behind you in an internal rotation position. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? The 90, 90 yeah. position? Yeah, it, it does. So to describe it to people, it's a bit like the pigeon pose in yoga, except your hind leg is pointing out to your side at a 90 degree angle rather than directly behind you. Um, and it's a kind of, it's, it's a very common hip position in jujitsu in many, well, you'd move through the position. You wouldn't necessarily stay there. And it's funny you talk about the feet pointing out. Um, a good friend of mine who's appeared on the show, Jack Edwards, pointed out to this to me about five years ago and there was a photo where you know you all stand around and take a photo after training and nearly every person had their feet really externally rotated really pointing out and i think it's it's because of the kind of hip movements we do in jujitsu um and it's you know it's not a stable position to be in particularly if you're walking around like that all the time and you know that that, that that's that's going to place a lot of stress mm -hmm. right not just on the hip but on the knees as well when you, you, when you don't walk around and operate in that stable position on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, you're going to start to typically chew through that medial knee, which is the medial meniscus, the MCL. Um, you know, but again, I find a lot of people really hit their hips first. So a lot mm. of 
you know, and I've seen them, you know, some of the older jujitsu guys nowadays who've been doing it for a long time have tend to have really poor hip mobility and really bad knees as they get older, at least the ones that I've seen because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and again, we can argue, is it, is it just the muscles in the back of the hip that are tight because of jujitsu or did some of these people choose jujitsu because they were, their joints are shaped like that and it gives them a, uh, a, an advantage, a mechanical advantage because they're already like that makes the bad positions like guard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just jotting down some notes here. It, yeah. I've asked that question. I, I think with some of the, there are like the, like the Miao brothers, Paul, uh, Paulo and Zhao Miao to, Mm-hmm. I believe they're both black belt world champions, um, but some of the best guys in the world, and you and they've got crazy flexibility. Right, and we did we did a did a seminar with one of them like a year back, and you can see they're doing these drills and these warm up drills. That yeah, it's a good question, right? Are they good at jujitsu because they have that mobility, or you know, do they develop that for jujitsu? Maybe maybe a combination of both. So, would you say that? I don't know, let me let me, re- let me put this question another way. So with jujitsu, um, and in general, people think, well, yeah, more more mobility is, is great. Um, and let's take out of the picture, you know, hypermobility with with some of the joints. But are there? Um, it, would there be a case for actually working too much mobility if we just stick with the hips as an example, and we can we could look at other joints as well. And you go and you compromise your stability and your strength of that joint. That there's actually there's a limit maybe to how more or not so so much how mobile you want to be, but how much you want to focus on mobility over stability. It's quite a long question. Sorry. Yeah. So I think that um, your body will give you the mobility that it feels comfortable with unless you're jamming that mobility down its throat, right? So I mean, hips, shoulders are a great example. I treat a lot of CrossFitters and they all want more shoulder mobility, more shoulder mobility. And in my opinion, they haven't earned it yet, which Mm. means they have to be stable enough to earn that mobility. And that's something, that's a model that we stick with at our office is if you're just stretching, 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 and you're working mobility, 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 and it seems like you're always working the same thing or you can never get enough of it, I think you more than likely have a stability issue. You know, if you're stable enough in some of these positions, your body will give you that mobility. That's functional capacity. Mm. So is that going to be... So, but yeah, there is... Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was going to ask you, so is that a case then of... Is it one of two things? Let's take the shoulder as an example. If you, ha- if you haven't got the shoulder... Um, you know, sent the, the joint centrated. Is it just literally that you know the bones and the ligaments and the tendons start grinding together, and that limits the mobility? Or is it also a case of the body when it's not when the joint is not stable, the joint that the body gets scared and goes, actually, I don't want you to move past this point. Yeah, combination. So I would call that a neuroprotective mechanism. So our brain is this awesome, amazing thing that we are still learning so much about. And in my opinion, very often the brain protects us from potentially injured, like injury ridden positions for us by limiting soft tissue, by limiting the joints. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that, that would be what I would call a protective pattern. And you see it, you know, very commonly after accidents, you see people get whiplash like torticollis and, you know, that's an, a, just an extreme example of their body underwent trauma and it uses muscle spasm and guarding as a protective mechanism. Mm. And the same can be said for a, like a, a lack of mobility in some joints. Mm. So do you, I, I want to go back to the developmental stages because I find this quite interesting. And what I find, what I find interesting about the development stages is they seem like, oh, I can do this exercise. I can lie on my back and do a dead bug, right? And I think maybe that was, or oh, lie in supine, right? And some people will call it a dead bug. I think it's maybe a good example to talk about and we can build up from there. But people can look at that and go, yeah, I can do that. That's, that's really easy. Um, until you know the actual details of what it is you should be doing in terms of, you know, the hips and the pelvis have got to stay level. You're not over-engaging the outer abs and these kind of things. So it might be good to talk a little. We can maybe start off with the, the supine position, um, but good to talk through the different developmental stages you would put a person through. And then, again, this is a really long question, I'm sorry, but, you know, talk about, you know, why do people need to go back to that so much if, they've, if they're already adults and have gone through that in the past? Yeah, so one thing that I think DNS is on a lot and that I first focus on is quality over quantity. And so, yes, you, many people can do a dead bug, but the quality a lot of times isn't always there. And if the quality is not there, slowly but surely, you're gonna drive your body into the ground. So think about it, I use this uh, similar analogy as to driving a car, right? Is you might have a really nice car, but if you slowly but surely drive crazy, eventually you will not have a car because you're gonna crash it. And the same can be said for our body, like the, the higher quality you move with, the not only the less injuries you're going to have, but the more efficient you're going to be. And that's where really your longevity for your sport comes in, but also your performance comes in. And so, you know, as we go through these developmental stages, it's for me really not just can you do the test is, or the exercises, what's the quality like? What's mm -hmm. your breathing like? What is your positioning like? And I think that's, um, we mentioned, talked earlier a little bit about yoga. Um, there's so much overlap between DNS and yoga because a lot of the yoga positions, in my opinion, are also based on development and how kids move. For instance, cobra position or child's pose. You know, those are, I mean, I saw my kids do those all, they still do them. You know, down dog. So my son does it all the time, you know, but they do it with automatically with really good quality where I see a lot of people just are lacking in that quality and they hang out on their ligaments and their joints or they use their prime movers. And again, slowly but surely, if you do that, you will drive your body into the ground. And so, you know, if, if you want to know exactly the, the DNS developmental positions, you know, they're listed for free on their website, go to rehabps.com and just check out the posters and you can see the three months supine position, the three month prone all the way up to standing. And it's, uh, they have an online library with videos if you want to start learning a little bit about it. Um, so yeah, we can definitely chat through them some more, but I would say for those of you out there, it's a great free resource, go check it out. And, and then not just, you know, look at three months supine, but, but look at how it 
you know, look at the quality and read about it and see how it compares to, for you jujitsu guys, how it compares to guard position. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's the same thing. Guard, you just have a little bit more external rotation in your hips. But other than that, um, yeah, it's the same thing for me. Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of similar similarities, and I I think I encourage people to go to to go to your Instagram page as well. But of you know rehab.ps or rehabps.com, I'll, I'll I'll link all of this stuff in in the show notes. Um, but I was going to ask you if you could give people you know just one or two tips for the things they should be looking at in terms of the quality of movement in these positions. What are the typical key cues people should be thinking about? Uh, the biggest one is where their breathing's coming from and where they're and how well are they bracing. So three month supine position is basically a squat on your back or very similar to bottom full guard. Mm-hmm. And so your 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 back's flat to the ground, your legs, your hips are about ninety degrees, and then uh, your knees are about ninety degrees. And so one of the things we look for is, you know, can I see that six pack? or that eight pack in that position. Cause if so, that that's not ideal. So what I'm looking mm. for is good, even muscle tone across the entire abdominal cavity. And then are you also breathing not just through your belly, but 360 degrees. So that means you're using your anterior diaphragm, your lateral diaphragm, as well as your posterior diaphragram. And mm. so a lot of people focus just on belly breathing, which is just anterior, like, which is just the anterior diaphragm. And if you want good stable movement um, of your body, but also protection of your spine, you need 360 degrees of breathing. And so those are, I would say two of the better things to look for. And that really goes for any position is, you know, what's the quality of your muscle tone in your abdominal cavity and what is your breathing like? Mm. Would it be fair to call the bracing a, a, a relaxed tension through the core? If that, that's what, how I've thought about it, but would that be a good term to use to try to frame it? That I'm not re- soup, like you said, you know, even torn. I'm not over tensing the muscles, but it's like kind of a relaxed tension rather than overly trying to brace everything in in, in that position. Yeah, I think that's a. a- a great way to put it. I use the balloon example a lot. Okay. So when we blow the balloon up and you tie it, you know, there is tension on that balloon, um, but there's also some give there. And mm-hmm. so you want, again, yeah, that relaxed tension. So if you were pushing out what's called the valsalvin or are you pushing out like you're pooping, not clenching your abs, but pushing out 360 degrees, you should feel if you put your, your fingers or your hands on your waist and you push out, you should feel just like a balloon that like all the way around it moves out Mm. and that is tension in your muscles, but like not a clenching of your muscles, if you will. So that relaxed tension that you talked about. And, you know, one of the other things that uh, a mentor of mine, Robert Lardner talks about is, you know, when we brace our abdominals or when we push out, when we create that relaxed tension, think about it like a volume knob is, we don't want a hundred percent volume for a job that requires 5%. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's for instance, if you're, you know, in jujitsu, you don't want to use all your energy in one position because you're going to tire out super fast. That's just not efficient. Mm-hmm. And so when we're creating some of this relaxed tension, 
you want an, you want just enough to do the job and no more. Yeah. And I think a lot of people use way more than they need to. So if, if I was to use the example of I'm sitting here, I've got a, a wobbly stool, supposed to be good for posture, that you know, the, the amount of tension I should be holding now in my core is going to be way less than if I'm doing a Turkish get-up or a squat or any kind of weighted movement, right? So it's, but there is still, should, but there still should be, I, I guess, some tension in almost all of the movements that we do to create that spinal stability. Yeah, and it should be automatic. So, some, so you sitting there, you should automatically have some degree of tension mm-hmm. of that canister and of some of your muscles to hold you upright. What do you think of the plank exercise? Because that seems to be, I don't know, for me for years, I used the plank as one of my main core exercises. Um, and a lot of people still use the plank as, as the main core exercise. Is that something that, unless you know the DNS concepts, is that a kind of exercise that could move you towards more using the prime movers versus the stabilizing muscles? Ah, that's a great question. Um, for me, I am not at all opposed to the plank. In some ways, it could move you towards the prime movers, but I think uh, there's plenty of ways to use your stabilizers as well. Mm. And one thing that I see people really get wrong very often in the plank is their pelvic position. I think people go into a plank and too often I see an anterior t- pelvic tilt position instead of a neutral pelvis. And so what I have people do is when they go into position, tuck their tail or create um, movements of the pelvis posterior. Uh, now again, we're not ask, I'm not asking you to round your lumbar spine, but too many times people are in an anterior pelvic tilt, which is, you know, it throws off the whole exercise. So if you're not feeling a plank in your lower abdominals, like right above your pubic bone, you're not in a good pelvic position. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I have another really, really good one that, that we like to use um, that I think is a really good start for many people. And it's based off the 10 month sit from DNS. And so you're sitting in your chair right now. So if you just, you know, sit up tall and most people are going to overcorrect by arching their back. And so I'll have mm-hmm. them let off 10 to 15%. Yeah. And now I want you just to start to lean your torso back and you're going to feel your abdominals automatically engage as you lean back. And so this is very similar to when kids are 10 months and they want to transition to crawling. Very often they'll start to tilt back slightly to, to automatically engage their canister and then they'll rotate to go onto all fours and crawl. And so I use the seated version for adults. We call it the modus lean where you just start to lean back in your chair, not all the way back, but you lean back and you'll feel yourself start to automatically engage without thinking twice about it. And that's uh-huh. a really good exercise, in my opinion, for people start to feel like what it feels like to automatically engage without excessive tension. What, is there a danger in that position? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this from a personal perspective because I've noticed this as of late, the more I've gone into the DNS work, is, you know, I've, even though I have a standing desk or, have, you know, don't slouch too much when I'm, when I'm working, I I feel like I've I've learned to use 
the spinal erectors maybe far too much to stabilize versus the core and then that's what gives me a lot of tension kind of in my in my mid in my mid back is that is that one of the, a danger in that kind of position to overly rely on the spinal erectors when you lean back yeah correct uh the, if you're doing it correctly they should be pretty much relaxed mm -hmm. so again that's why we, we sit up tall and we let go and when you lean back you should feel that your erectors are relaxed yeah yeah because i i've i, I found, found that personally you know over the last six months that it's there's a difference between being tall and being long through the spine as opposed to engaging the spinal erectors to pull me up um, and I've, and I've no, I almost, I can, I can almost tell when I'm sitting, I'll, I'll run my fingers up and down the spine and I'll feel there's tension there, you know, maybe at the bottom, you know, just mm -hmm. in the thoracic spine. So anyway, just that's more of a sidebar. Yeah. And your erectors, a lot of people like to work their erectors. And again, depending on what sport you have, I have no problem with working the erectors, but if you're just sitting or if you're standing, those erectors should be mostly relaxed. If they're mm -hmm. like rock hard, like sausages or train tracks, uh, then you're more than likely not in a centrated position in, in that area. So maybe yeah. your pelvis is too tilted anteriorly. Maybe your thoracolumbar junction is too arched up. And so for those of you out there, one thing that I have people do is when you stand up, if you look at your, your, the button of your shorts or like a belt buckle, and then you look at the, the bottom of your sternum where your xiphoid is, and you point your fingers straight out. Those two areas should point forward like an arrow, mm -hmm. and they should be parallel to each other. So your belt buckle, ideally, if your pelvis is centrated, shouldn't be pointing down very far, and your xiphoid should be pointing up very far. That's known as, uh, and you see it a lot in a lot of people, that's known as the open scissor position. Mm -hmm. which will create a lot of erector tension in many people. And it's also um, not a position you want to be caught in, especially in jiu-jitsu, because there's no power there. Yeah, because your, your core is turned off, so you lose a lot of the power for that reason. You, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, there's no mechanical advantage to your abdominals. So mm -hmm. again, think if you, know, if you hold a weight close, close to your body versus far away, it's much harder further away because there's no leverage. So, you know, the further away your belt buckle and your xiphoid are, the less mechanical advantage your abdominals have and mm. the harder it is for them to, to do their job. Can we talk so a bit about... So I look about... at, for me, DNS is... No, please go ahead. Yeah, really quick. So for me, yeah, the, one of the big things that I get out, out of DNS is it puts us in mechanically advantageous positions if we're doing a good quality job with things. And that's one of the ways it not only reduces injury, but enhances performance is it helps us understand what is the mechanically advantageous position for our hip to be in, for our pelvis to be in, for our low back to be in. And again, if you're a mechanical engineer and you start to look at some of these things and you start to look at levers and ball and socket joints and the types of things, you know, it, it, for me, this is what makes complete sense. Yeah, it, it's the Paul check that has the, has the term of you can't fire a cannon out of a canoe. Yeah, yeah I think that's him. 
Yeah, similar similar thing, right? It, it kind of, I suppose you could lend it sure. with different scenarios. I'd love to talk to you about the head and neck positioning and posture in general. I know it's an important part of, of, of DNS. And if we go back to developmental things, you know, my, my daughter's youngest daughter's head is probably 50% of her body weight, right? So that, that plays a big role in developing, you know, the, 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 the stability, but also, you know, in jujitsu posture is incredibly important, but I find that, you know, people tend to get stiff and sore necks a lot um, so it would be good to talk about you know the, the, the position of the head in relation to the body, what that can do for your stability, and what a DNS approach would be to, to looking at improving head position, neck strength, and, and those factors. Yeah, and so you know, for me, DNS talks a lot about cervical elongation, and that cervical elongation actually starts. Um, from T4, it actually starts from that upper thoracic region. And mm. so a lot of people with rounded thoracic or stiff thoracic uh, spines, there's, it's one of the reasons we can't get into a, a, a nice elongated position in the neck. And so one of the ways I help people find that is to just grab the hair on the top of your head and start to pull up almost like you're a puppet. Yes, people will mm. start to automatically because there's a lot of like a lot of um, proprioception on your scalp, a lot of people will start to automatically go into a correct position. Mm. And so what we don't want is we don't want the chin to move up as well. So we want that chin in your nose to stay looking straight ahead as you start to elongate your neck. And so mm. a lot of people will go into like an overcorrection here where they're making a double chin. Well, that's an, what I would call an overcorrection as well. And so, um, we got the overcorrection of the double chin, and then also too, a lot of people like to come out. They they stuck their chin out, and that's I think a product of society and looking ahead of us. And that again takes mechanical advantage away from our our neck muscles in the front, our deep neck flexors. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of positions in DNA. Really, so for me, any problem people have or anything they want to work on for me can be worked in any position in DNS. So one of two of my favorites to work on on neck position and cervical elongation are actually the three month positions, the three month prone, which is basically if I ask somebody to lay on their elbows like they were going to read, that's like lay on their belly, propped up on their elbows and read. That's similar to the DNS three month position prone. And then the three month supine is again, the one on your back where your neck is nice and long and our legs are at that 90, 90 position. And so even just lengthening your neck in that position and feeling your head slide across the ground, you will feel your anterior neck muscles start to engage. Mm. And now there's all kinds of exercises you can do from that position. So just keep your neck long and then you can swing your legs from side to side. Mm -hmm. You know, that starts to not only engage the intra-abdominal canister and the oblique chains, but it makes your neck muscles have to work that much harder to keep your neck nice and long in that position. I'm going to pose a question to you. Sorry, the internet connect, the, my internet connection is a bit sketchy. Uh, yeah. So I've got, I've got a question for you, right? And, and don't feel like you've got to be nice. You can tell me that's a really bad idea, right? It's that, but I've, I've played with the idea in my head for a while thinking about, 
you know, one of the reasons why children, you know, develop and, and, and develop the strength and stability they have is because of the relation of the head to the size of the rest of the body. I've played with the idea, but never put it into practice. What if you were to wear a weighted helmet as an adult to do some of these, to some of these similar movements? Is that just kind of not needed? Is it one of those, ah, do you know what, you're going into territories that you might not want to explore? Was there, is there, and, and, and be completely honest with me, or would there be some kind of credence for, for doing those kind of exercises? Uh, yeah, I don't think I would be opposed to that uh, if you were doing it as part of a training routine. Same thing like mm-hmm. wearing a weighted vest. Mm-hmm. So, and again, I think that you would just have to be really cognizant of of your your position and your centration. And then again, doing it as an exercise and just being acutely aware of the quality. So the only thing that I would worry about is if you're just walking around with this thing all day, there's plenty of instances more than likely where you're not thinking about is my neck centrated yeah. in the correct position, you know? Yeah. So, but if you treated it like, Oh, Hey, you know, I'm going to do 10 minutes with this, you know, 14 pound helmet on my head. And I'm going to really work on my anterior stabilizers in my neck. And you did a really good job. I personally would not be opposed to it, but I, you know, I can't speak for, for other people in the DNS world. Yes, you'd need to approach it carefully, and there are some obvious dangers in in how you approach it that it could put you know put you into a put a worse position than you started off with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we here here's the thing in clinic: we use therabands to increase that resistance all the time. And okay. So, or we use, um, you know, I use weights and hands to actually work neck position as well. So I might, uh, in that, in that three months supine position, I might have somebody hold, um, a kettlebell over their head and take their hands over their head while keeping their neck elongated and even Mm. moving the arms makes those neck muscles have to work that much harder to maintain that position. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of like easier, safer versions, but again, you know, everything's relative you can do it safely i'm definitely not opposed to it would you ever place the theraband on the head to add more direct resistance to the neck for sure absolutely we do that in three month prone quite a bit we will wrap it around the back of the head and then have them engage up Mm -hmm. and then um, i've also placed it around the front of the head in a three month supine and had them make sure they're nice and elongated and just have them lift like an inch off the table yeah so, oh yeah, there's lots of really cool versions as long as you understand, you know, centration and what's a good solid position to be in and that you can maintain it. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Because I've done a lot of that in the past and I feel like it helps, but it does come back to having that centrated position. I did see there's there's one brand of, of head trainer, neck trainer, that I won't, I won't mention the brand name, and I was looking at some videos, and it looks to be a very good tool where you, you put resistance around the head and you can move into these positions, so it's specifically designed for that. But they were posting videos of these, they were relatively young athletes wearing it and doing certain exercises. And, you know, their, 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 their shoulders are hunched, the chin is coming forward, the spine is not stable. And I was, it was like watching a car crash in slow motion almost, seeing some of the positions they were, uh, uh, they were doing. Right? So maybe the idea was there, but the execution, you know, wasn't. Yeah, I'll tell you, not only um, neurodevelopmental positions, but 
I recommend uh, headstands to a lot of people. I think if okay. you can do a really good job of headstands, they can build up a lot of stability in the neck musculature. But I don't think people often do a super solid job with headstands. Do you have any back to some yoga? Do you have any videos online that point to right? This is the position you should be in for a good headstand. Uh, we don't right now. If, um, yeah, and I'm trying to think of some resources that maybe I've seen one. You know, our DNS yoga instructor Martina Jeskova. She's on Instagram and Facebook. She may have posted one at some point, but you know, I think that most 300 level yoga instructors, uh, in my experience, t- teach a pretty darn good job of doing good headstands. Because yeah. again, it's about mechanical advantage and control. If your head isn't in a good position, you're not going to be able to hold that position for very long. Yeah. And so just by necessity, again, most, most two, maybe even 200, but 300 level yoga instructors know how to teach it really well. Yeah. Yeah. So moving in, moving into yoga, because I know this is one of the things that we'd connected on originally. Um, I've been, I've been looking at, you know, different yoga positions now very through a very different lens since I started, you know, researching DNS. I'll use one example to start off with where at the top of a sun salutation where if people don't know what that is, where you put your arms above your head and then you, if in traditional yoga, you would arch the back, almost hyperextend the lower back and put the head up into the ceiling. And I've, I've looked at that as one position where, you know, I'm, maybe wrongly so right i'm taking my body out of a more body and spine out of an ideal you know stable position and i tend to adjust a lot of these positions and i could give other examples so it'd be good just to talk in general about um you know some of the things people maybe want to watch out for when they're practicing yoga if you're coming at it from a dns perspective so I think one of the biggest things that I've taken away from the DNS courses in particular, the DNS yoga courses is to be active in whatever position it is you want to be, be in. And that includes yoga, right? So if, if you're going and you're just starting to arch your back into this position and you're not thinking about maintaining your intra-abdominal pressure to some degree to keep your diaphragm and your pelvic floor and to keep your stabilizers on, uh, then you're setting yourself up long-term for potential problem. Same thing with, you know, like many people know a cobra position, mm-hmm. which is where you lay on your belly and you straighten your arms, but you leave your hips on the ground. And so too many people just press up, which is fine. But like some DNS practitioners might say, okay, well, let's like create some intra-abdominal bracing first. And now I want you to maintain some degree of that and try and maintain your hips and your rib cage parallel to each other and then come up into that position. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, those are just two examples of some things. So what you're not saying, um, and they, you know, if people are mis, you're misunderstanding the, the DNS approach to things, is that you don't have to keep your spine in a dead straight position all the time because that's not what we're not designed to do that. But when we're coming out of these positions, you need to think still about where the breathing is coming from the interabdominal pressure. So you're still, you're bending with stability rather than relaxing through the front of the body. 
Yeah, so functional joint centration should be dynamic, right? Rigid and never moves. It's, you know, as we move, we just want to keep, again, we want to keep our, our body stable and our joints in centrated or that neutral position. One, because it protects us from potential injury, but two, it's also advantageous to do things like that. Mm-hmm. I think common hip flexor stretches as well. I think it's a crescent lunge is the correct term for one of the positions in, in, in yoga. That's another thing where I see, if I picture in my mind, if you were to draw a straight line through the torso, down from the shoulder to the top of the hip, and then, and then a straight line through the, through the thigh bone, you can almost see that it almost looks like the thigh bone is going to pop out of the front of the hip. And that's one of the positions where it looks as though people are, you know, maybe overextending with the stretch and maybe are too relaxed. And it, at least, you know, in my, you know, in my perspective, that, that hip joint is, doesn't look like it's in centration at all. Seems to be a big problem area. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a, again, a plethora of positions that we could do, but you know, it's again, it really is. And what I want, hope people get out of this. It's, it's not that I'm saying, oh, you know, don't do this or don't do that. It's, you know, take a look at some of the things that you're doing and see if you can make the position a little bit better. So, again, if, if your hip bone's popping out to one side, put that back in what we would call a centrated position, which, again, is keeping that pelvis parallel to mm-hmm. the ground and not letting one side ride up higher than the other because eventually yeah. that could potentially have long-term consequences. And to tell you that when you're in that position you're not getting nearly the stretch that you want to get so not only does do centrated positions very often create more stability but you get some wicked stretch in, in these positions when you when you maintain them better so the so the key the key takeaway you're saying from that those kind of positions, but many positions also would be keeping you know the the the, pel, the the pelvis at the same height on both sides, but trying to keep a level pelvis as much as possible in relation to in relation to the to the thigh bone as an example. Yeah, just in that in that one as an example. Yes. So I do I do want to get on to the check get up at some point. I'm fascinated by that. I know you've done some work with kettlebells. I love kettlebells. But before we want to, before we get into that, um, I'd love to talk about. I may not use the correct terms, but when we do certain exercises, I'm going to use the bench press, right? I'm not bashing the bench press as a bad as a bad exercise, even though I barely recommend it. But it's when we when we're doing mostly bilateral exercises and I think it applies more to the upper body than the lower body and we have to create stability and we have to fix the thoracic spine to create stability to perform a movement. I'd love to you know, pick your brains on you know, over time how and why that can become a problem when we use something that's meant to be um, you know, fairly mobile and to, to really, f- we fix the thoracic joint in place when we do these kind of exercises. And I've read, and it'd be good to get your opinion, and over time, this causes problems and overcompensation and mobility in other areas, the spine and the shoulders, etc. So what exactly is your question there? 
Sorry. <laughs> it's not here, okay. I know it's, it's quite long-winded. But if we take an example like the bench press, where people are having to uh -huh. create a stable joint in the thoracic spine to perform that exercise, I've yeah. read that over time it causes compensatory um, hypermobility in other parts of the spine because the more we perform those kind of exercises, the more we lose the mobility in that area of the back. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yes. So, some joints are more mobile than others. Some are better being stiff than others. I'm not opposed really to using stiffness as a tool in something like the bench press, but when we do it repeatedly over time and we don't create balance with, like, and the thoracic spine is just one common example because, you know, we sit a lot. Uh, in America and it leads us to being hunched and we get stiffer and stiffer there. So for those of you, you know, that thoracic hunch, just think about, you know, bending your, your pointer finger and just being stuck there. Mm -hmm. And so we want that finger, we need it to be able to be mobile, right? So if we do all these things to bend it, bend it, bend it, and we just get a little stiffer and a little stiffer and a little stiffer, then it gets, it starts to stay back. So we have to do and again i work with a lot of powerlifters so i'm definitely not opposed to to bench press or anything like that but i think it's about creating balance right so if you're going to use stiffness in a joint like the thoracic spine where we need to use it for a lot of things or it will create compensations we have to create some balance there um, doing other things like some overhead work which requires some thoracic movement or um, some rotational exercises or you know an exercise uh, like the Turkish or the Czech getup, where we're we really need some thoracic extension. And so mm -hmm. I think for me, it's you know it's it's not a bad thing to have some stiffness for certain lifts or certain positions, but we we just have to balance it out. Does yeah. that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does. So um, uh, for those of you, yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the the Czech getup, uh, it was created by. Uh, some DNS instructors, Richard Al, Mike Rintala, Martina Jaskova, and some, some other people on the DNS team. And it is similar to the Turkish getup, and it is not a replacement for the Turkish getup by any means, but based a little bit more on the neurodevelopmental sequence. And so you can just type in, check get up to YouTube, and there's a couple of videos up there. But uh, again, it's very similar. Um, but it just kind of takes us through some of those developmental positions like three months supine, which is like our guard to six months supine. And then it, it transitions us to sideline and then it transitions us to different um, elbow, low oblique sits and, high, and some higher positions. And mm -hmm. so um, it's a great example of an exercise that is meant, um, each of those positions is meant to be owned. It's not just about going through them all and doing it and calling it a day. It's, you know, what is your quality in each step of that position? And are you lacking some you transition as and not only in the position itself, but as you transition? Mm. I've I hadn't come across the specific term of the check get up until I was going through your account um prepare, preparing for this show. It, looking at a couple of images online, it's there I can see two key differences but it would be good to know some other differences as well versus the traditional get up one it seems to be that people are working with 
a slightly more of a bent arm when they're holding the kettlebell up in the air. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. And also it looks like they finish in a squatted position um, or they go through a squatted position at some point during the movement where you don't do that in the, in the traditional get-up. Yeah, so I think um, one of the differences right away is you're in that supine three-month position, which mm. is, again, similar to guard for those of you out there who aren't. And then um, from there, you know, a, a lot of it is very similar, transitioning to sideline, up into an elbow position, up into a hand, like which is called a low high oblique sit to a tripod. So that's a little bit different, the tripod position, um, than the typical Turkish, but pretty much the same, uh, to a high kneeling, which is also part of Turkish, mm-hmm. and to standing. And then from standing, you move into a squat. And then from that squat position, then you just reverse the whole movement. So again, they've added uh, a squat onto the end. Um, but a couple of the, I think, you know, the beginning and the end, for me are, are definitely differences. And then some of the stuff in between is definitely a little bit uh, different. And I would say probably a little bit stricter um, towards development compared to maybe the Turkish might be. I know straight away that the single arm overhead squat at the end is something that I'm going to struggle massively with. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to, to try to try that one out. Um, what what's your approach to someone we can take the Turkish getup as, as an example or the Czech getup as an example. What's your approach to going heavy versus working within a comfortable range of motion to work on stability for someone who's an experienced strength athlete? So if I could rephrase that question in a different in a different way what percentage of time should they work within a comfortable weight versus you know trying to push the boundary slightly and go in okay you fought you may jeopardize your form here but you're trying to you know push the boundaries of your strength or should they never compromise the form in in your opinion uh so i think one of the primary purposes for me of the check get up is quality and form mm-hmm. and so for for the check in particular I would almost always choose uh, lower weight and focusing on quality and form than I would ever going heavy with that. Mm-hmm. Because it, for me, some of those positions and the transitions might be a little bit more challenging um, for certain reasons. And again, I, uh, and I'm not opposed to people going heavy in the Turkish, but I think that's definitely, um, there's a time and a place for that. And mm-hmm. again, this, uh, the reps should definitely be lower and, I would also never, I shouldn't say never, I wouldn't typically advocate for, for sacrificing uh, form to go heavy, but mm-hmm. you know, definitely work with a strength and conditioning coach who's going to be watching you do those things. So I, last week I went heavy with my Turkish get-ups. So I did three sets of three reps on each side heavy, but I had somebody watching me doing those repetitions. And when I started to sacrifice, he pointed it out. Mm-hmm. And if I was able to change it, if I was able to improve my quality, I could progress. If I could not, then I had to stop that rep and lower the weight. And that's how I typically do mine. I have somebody watching me and I get a chance to correct my improper form. Uh, and if I can, great. If I can't, then, you know, I'm probably not quite ready for that yet. You used the term earlier on when you were talking about overhead mobility. 
and you said people have got have to earn the right for the overhead mobility and earn the right to be in certain positions and it sounds like that would apply here you know you've got to earn the right to maybe go heavier with a particular exercise yeah i i absolutely think that that's true i think too many people just blow through their boundaries because maybe they're not paying attention to their body or they just want to go heavy and again that is going to come with a price eventually and so respect yourself, respect your body, listen to it. Uh, again, I'm not at all opposed to going heavy. And you know what? If it's meat day and you're a power lifter and the form isn't pretty, then so be it. But that's why you've put in all the good quality reps before that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make, make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. It does, right? I think there's, there's a difference between training and, and, and performance and in a competition, right? But you always try to aim for quality, I suppose, to give yourself that that base with which to, you know, if you veer off slightly in certain circumstances, then you know, not necessarily it's okay, but you've given yourself the best possible chance to succeed by building that foundation in the first place. Yeah, you know, it's the same with any house or anything you want to build the the higher quality that foundation is, the longer it's going to last. And the same as goes for people training, mm-hmm. right? You know, bad reps eventually lead to bad outcomes, whether that's le- not as good a performance or injuries. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I've, I really encourage people to go away and to look up the, the the resources you referenced because it's been it's been a game changer for me over the last over the last six months. And I don't want people to think that by going to these what seem like more simple exercises, they seem like well, okay, that's not going to develop strength, quote unquote. It's 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 only improved my performance. And maybe you need to take an ego check. I think is what I wanted to say. You need to check your ego for a period and go, do you know what? I'm going to step away from going heavy for a little while. I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm only doing 50% of what I would normally do. But but pretty soon you'll get back, to, at least in my experience, people will get back to the point of what they um, what they thought their kind of you know, peak performance was and hopefully will surpass that, at least in my experience, with this kind of approach. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what we tell our, you know, our competitive athletes when they walk in our office or at our courses is, you know, when you start to work on some of these things, you're working on, on your motor control and your efficiency first and strength will typically go down for a period of time. So usually we use the reference window of four to six weeks. Sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer. That depends on you know, the individual and your neuroplasticity and a lot of other things. Um, But plan on strength going down for a little bit. But what happens is, again, as you build that foundation better and better and better, your performance just starts to skyrocket at a certain point and your bell curve just kind of keeps going at this slow, slow climb uphill. And, you know, your injuries are less and you're performing better than ever. But, you know, know initially that, you know, your strength might go down and that's okay you're building yourself a better future. Let's say someone goes away and they look, they, they look, you know, someone listening goes away, they look at your content, they look at some other content around DNS exercises and they pick three to four exercises that they go, okay, I'm going to work on these. 
because this is a lot to do with you know retraining the central nervous system as opposed to um, trying to drive you know tissue change um, within the body. Mm-hmm. How frequently would you recommend that someone would work these exercises? So, for me, I recommend people work on this stuff three to five times a day. You know, but it might only be a couple minutes at a time. And so, if that sounds like a lot, it doesn't have to be right. Mm-hmm. We, there's plenty of ways to incorporate some of this stuff in throughout the day. Again, working on breathing and bracing is something any of us can do on an airplane at work. Um, and so, you know, again, the more you work on this stuff, the quicker you create change. But at a certain point, it's got to, for me, it has to be practical for you. Mm-hmm. So if you can get stuff in only one good quality time a day, then spend a little extra time, do some extra reps. But, you know, the more frequently you can work on this stuff, the quicker you're going to create change. And I think, at least in my opinion, that's the way it is for any habit you want to change. The more you work on it, the quicker you change it. Mm. Yeah, three to five times a day. I've I've been doing something usually most mornings, not every morning. So it's interesting to, to hear you say three to five times a day. But I think the point that you're making is that these are not necessarily intense exercises. They're very low intensity, so it shouldn't really impact the overall training volume that you've got. No. It's, it's it, you know, very low intensity, high frequency type exercises. Yeah, I mean, you're spending maybe two or three minutes at a time. So mm. if you do it three times a day, that's nine minutes. If you do it five times a day, that's 15 over the course of a day. Yeah. And so for me, like you, I have little kids. So one of the things um, I like to run, so I work on single leg RDLs a lot. So when I pick up toys around my house, I'm doing single leg RDLs. And so that's a super practical way for me. And I'm working on my breathing, my bracing, I'm working on my pelvic position. So it's something that that I'm already doing, but I'm just adding a little bit of intention to it to do what I need to do to get my time in. I, I do it a lot when I'm brushing my teeth. Or if I'm washing the dishes, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll focus that time of, right, I need to be long through the spine, where's my breathing, and all of the different stuff that we've talked about. And it's, it's, not, it's not really, I, I try to think about it, not necessarily as, oh, I'm doing these exercises. I'm like, no, I'm just reestablishing the baseline of what I should be doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of my classic examples is if you ever see me at, the, at a line in Whole Foods, you better believe that I'm going to be doing something to work on myself. <laughs> like it's just people point at me and they're like, look at, there's that weird guy. I don't care. Like, you know, so I use those two or three minutes waiting in line to my advantage. Right. Otherwise for me, it's wasted time. And so, yeah, I used to do it on dishes all the time. I mean, it's, you know, get it in where you can people <laughs> be practical. Like you think you got to set aside 15 minutes a day. Uh, I'm telling you that it doesn't have to be like that. There's time in your day standing at the copier, wherever, that you can get this stuff in. Hmm. Thinking about standing up, and I know you haven't got much time left, so just a, a one or two more questions. What do you think about you know, work with the feet, feet positioning, in addition to the stuff of you know, the, the toes being flayed out, but also the kind of footwear that you recommend people are wearing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, 
feet are absolutely critical to our overall health, especially because we're, we're upright. And so, you know, they've done some studies in, you know, foreign countries um, where kids don't wear shoes until six or 12, like in rural areas. And, you know, the incidence of flat feet in some of those countries is non-existent. Wow. And so, you know, a lot of times we're putting kids in shoes way early and imagine I, I asked you to wear gloves all the time, you know, 12 hours, 16 hours a day for a year. You're not going to have much sensation left in your hands. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, shoe wear or even better, being barefoot as much as possible is a good thing. You know, we have a lot of sensors in our feet and they need to be able to feel things and not just for our foot's sake, but for our whole body's sake. So, you know, standing upright, there's things that you could be doing inside your shoes if you're wearing shoes, like working on spreading your toes, working on making your toes longer. Um, But, you know, I'm definitely a big advocate for minimalist footwear for the right person. Some people cannot start in minimalist footwear. They have Mm -hmm. to be kind of worked into those shoes because, you know, it might be a safety risk for them for injury. Um, But like my kids are outside you know, we're the, they're like the weird hippie kids on our block. They're outside barefoot running around in the grass and the rocks and the dirt. Um, because, you know, I want them to, you know, to have that advantage. Yeah. I'm very conscious of the footwear we put on our kids and they either wear very thin soled sandals. They were both barefoot for like for years and the trainers, if we do put them in trainers, I like them to wear Converse. I know the Converse has a thicker sole, but at least it has the, the flatter sole. So it's kind of a, a kind of, yeah, for me personally, um, it does remove some of the sensation, but at least you haven't got that raised arch in some yeah. respects. And they're pretty cheap. <laughs> the Converse. Yeah, for sure. For sure. good, good trainers. So I've got one last question for you before, before I leave you go, because I know you've got to get back to your family. Um, and it's you know, in relation to kettlebells. And just in general, in addition to the general principles that we've talked through already today and some, some fantastic information, are there any other specific things that you'd like people to focus on when they're doing some of the more dynamic kettlebell exercises like swings or snatches or whatever the case may be? Uh, can you repeat the question? You were breaking up for a second. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we've talked about a lot of good general principles today that will apply when someone is doing a more dynamic kettlebell exercise. Let's just use the kettlebell swing as an example. Are there any additional specific cues that you like to give people when they're performing those kind of exercises? Yeah, so kettlebell swing or the snatch, for example, I find a lot of times when people start to raise that kettlebell up towards their head, that when they're thrusting forward, they're thrusting by pushing their belly button forward, not by tilting their pelvis using their abdominals and their glutes. Mm -hmm. And so we get a lot of people that come in with low back pain because they're creating shearing of their lumbar spine. So again, if you look at it, like when you start to thrust that kettlebell forward, if you're popping your belly forward, that for me is typically not the ideal motion that we want to see. We want to see that, that pelvis tilting up when we thrust again and think about the arrow of your belt or a gun kind of swinging up as you, as you thrust that motion mm. instead of that belly button popping forward. So that's one of the big cues that we like to use. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I, I think that depends on the individual as well, but for you guys out there who are doing it, you know, if you're getting back pain with those movements, that's, you know, something 
kind of quick and easy you can take a look at. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. It's because it, ta- it will, should immediately take you out of hyperextension rather than, you know, the, rather than being in that long straight position. It should, but, you know, I'm continually surprised by the people that come in to our clinic with low back pain using kettlebells. Mm. Uh, when I think kettlebells are a fantastic tool and, you know, we just sitting isn't good for us and, you know, gets us into some bad habits as it pertains particularly to our pelvis and our abdominals. And, um, you know, a lot of people aren't using their abdominals in those movements. They're using glutes only. And, you know, that is, I will not necessarily say a mistake, but it's not optimal either. Mm. Well, I think you've alluded to another good point there where if you, you're sitting down most of the day for your job, or you, you know, then you drive in um, and then you go to the gym. You probably want to spend a good amount of time, a good, uh, maybe you can give a recommendation for how long someone should spend before they go into the rest of their exercises. Not warming up. I'm going to take warming up out of, out, out of the picture as in a traditional warm up like jogging. But how long should someone spend activating some of these stabilizing muscles before they go into their regular workup, workout? Sorry. Sure. So our general rule is five to seven minutes. Okay. You know, if you, you know, but part of our rule is too, is know what your weaknesses are and be able to do a self audit. So if it, you know, you should do some of the same tests, even if it's like a toe touch test, you should be doing that same test on a regular basis to know what's normal for you and what normal feels like. And then what's not normal. And so it's hard to know how you're feeling if you don't have a baseline. And so, and then also too, is having different tools to address different feelings. Like if your, if your abs aren't feeling on, well, what are your two or three tools you're going to do to, to kind of get them woken up? If your glutes aren't, you know, feeling awake, what are you going to do to get those fired up? So in general, we, we use the kind of five to seven minute time frame. If you're feeling really good. You can go a little shorter than that. If you're not feeling so good, go a little longer. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a, for us, it's a good amount of time that isn't, you know, too taxing or, or too impractical for most people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, no, it's a good, good rule of thumb. Um, so I know you've got to get back to the family. Where should people go to find out more about your work or more about DNS stuff in general, maybe any seminars, any education courses you've got coming up as well? Sure. So our website is Modus Education. That's M-O-T-U-S education.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Modus Education, Facebook. And then we have some DNS seminars coming up. Uh, We have one in Austin coming up September 14th and 15th. That's Austin, Texas. And we got some more later this year in New York, Boston, and Austin again. We're also, we're hosting... Dr. Ben Stevens for a kettlebell course in the Chicagoland area in October. And we're hosting Dr. Andy Galpin, uh, formerly of Barbell Shrugged, but he's going to be hosting a maximizing human performance course in Chicagoland in November and really looking forward to that. So Dr. Galpin's a stud along with all mm. of our, all of our other instructors as well. So yeah, check us out. If anybody has any questions, feel free to message me or email me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here to help and uh, whatever way I can. And these courses are appropriate for practitioners and coaches? Yeah, so 
uh, I primarily, you know, the, the courses that we're hosting really for the rest of the year can be taken by, you know, practitioners, chiros, physical therapists, occupational therapists, but also for coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, uh, personal trainers, you know, if you're, if you're not sure if you, you know, are qualified to take it, shoot me an email, but, uh, but you probably are if you're listening to this podcast. So let me know. Fantastic. Fantastic. Any closing thoughts you'd like to leave people with? Yeah, I think the big one is, you know, take a look at yourself and start focusing a little bit on quality over quantity. If you're not, you know, I think we get caught up in doing, doing, doing more and more and more and more. And there's probably some really simple areas where you could just be doing a little bit more quality job. That's going to have long-term benefits for not only like injury prevention, but for your performance. There you go. You heard it from the man himself. Bob, thank you so much. Uh, great interview, guys. I hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll, and we'll speak to you next time.